I don't know whose these are. I just want you to know that so you're not like, I wonder when he's going to use that sunglasses illustration. It's not coming. Don't look forward to it. Um, Living by Faith was the song we just sang. And it's really what we've been talking about last week. And we're going to keep talking about it this week. Uh, we talked about the importance of faith being matched with action. Uh, that being a disciple of Jesus doesn't just mean believing in him and studying about him. It means doing what Jesus would actively do. Uh, a lot of times we get in this idea that it's enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Uh, and because I have faith in Jesus and I have a right understanding of Scripture and I've got a good doctrine, uh, that that's what it means to be a faithful Christian. Uh, the problem is that over and over again, we read in Scripture about the challenge to do stuff, to, to give money, to serve others, to demonstrate uh, that being a follower of Jesus means that you live differently than people that are not followers of Jesus. You know, our little kids sing the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, and, and when you build your house on the rock and the storms come pouring down, uh, your house stands firm. And what is the rock that we build our, our houses on? Christ, right? Except that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, as long as you believe in me, your house is built on a firm foundation. What Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is, the one whose house is built on the rock is the one who hears these teachings of mine and puts them into practice. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. That's not enough to protect you from the storms. What Jesus says is, if you want your life to be storm-proof, you have to get in the daily routine of putting my teachings into practice. It's about that little actions and big actions that allow us to be Jesus' disciples in the world. That's what allows our house to survive the storms of life. Uh, Dallas Willard and I, I used this quote last week, the great kind of spiritual philosopher of Christianity over the last hundred years has a quote where he says, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people just need to get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. That's it. You get together with a group of people. Don't do it by yourself. Christianity was always meant to be a team sport. It's not tennis. I guess tennis can be doubles, but it's, not, it's, an, it's a team sport. It's like basketball. It's not golf, okay? Christianity is meant to happen in a group of people who come together and start with the teachings of Jesus and then say, if we believe this, then what do we as a group of Christians need to do about it? And then you start doing it. That's how you experience the kingdom of God. One of the ways we're going to be doing this at Northwest this year is on fourth Sundays. Just book out fourth Sundays on your phone calendar as bridge ministry days. And we're calling it bridge ministry days because we're going to try and come up with every month on the fourth Sunday different ways for you to connect with God. Ministries that build a bridge from where you are to where God is and where God is to where you are so that you can grow in your relationship with God. Ministries that help us to connect with one another. One of the things we've, we've learned in the past year or so is we've talked to Northwest members and said, hey, after being apart for two years or whatever uh, because of the pandemic or, or even before that, what do you wish our church was better at? 
People say, I'm so glad that there's so many people in the room, but I wish I knew some of them better than I did. We need opportunities that allow us to build bridges into each other's lives that we can connect with one another, sometimes in surface levels that just help you get to know someone you didn't know, but sometimes taking someone that you've known for years and in a simple and shallow way and really taking that relationship deeper. It's not just people who go to church together, but are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the third type of ministry that we're going to be doing on Fourth Sundays is, is things that help us build bridges into the world. So that we go out in the world and we serve people and we meet people and we connect with people in hopes that in our going out that they might later come in to the family of God and the people of God and get to know who Jesus is and why he matters for them. Ministries that build bridges to open the door to connections. James is writing, this is James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter to the churches. And he asked this question, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And deeds is actions. What if someone says, I have faith, but they don't do anything? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James says, listen, I go to church. He, he wouldn't have called it church, but that's what he's, he's talking about. James would say, I go to church, and there's people there that are in Bible class every week, and they talk about what the Bible means, and they study the different translations, and they do all this stuff, and they believe in Jesus. But man, they don't do anything about it. That faith is dead. It's not an active faith. It's not an alive faith. It's a dead faith. It's not enough to just believe. He says, listen, Satan and his demons believe in Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus comes in contact with people who are possessed by demons. And you know what those demons do? They know who Jesus is. Son of God, have mercy on me, demons say to Jesus. Because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. Amen. Now, does that faith save them? No. no. Because their faith in that is still existing in their rebellion against God. And so you can have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and still exist with dead faith in the same way that the demons can exist with oppositional faith. They believe in their opponents too many Christians today are believers who are apathetic and disinterested with a dead faith. And James says, listen, show, I'm going to show you my faith by what I do, by my actions, by my deeds. And the challenge is there for us today to be people who don't just say, I believe in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrection, but the people that we be the people of the therefore. Do you believe Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected? Yes. Then what are you going to do about it? 
Because if the answer is, isn't believing enough to be saved? Yeah, you're saved by Jesus' work on the cross. That's what saves you. It's not your actions. It's not your belief. It's Jesus' work on the cross. If you believe it and you claim it, the gift is yours. That's what grace is. But if as a result of your faith that that is true, you do nothing, you have a faith that's not worth much. It's not worth much. And so we want a faith that is worth great things, that is alive. Uh, there's a, a minister out in California, he's in the San Francisco area, and, and he's kind of bought into this idea. And, and he, sa- he says in his book, simply put, I believe we need to recover a sense of immediacy and action in our spiritual practices. Perhaps what we need is a path for discipleship that is more like a karate studio than a college lecture hall. I'd often wondered, what if, instead of talking about prayer, we actually prayed? Or what if, in addition to studying about God's heart for justice, we took action to care for needs? What if, instead of just telling each other about our struggles, we committed to a path for change? It seemed like the missing ingredient was a context that would encourage honesty, invite us into community, and move us from information into shared actions and priorities. He says, we need a process. We need a context. We need an environment that encourages this experimentation of faith. And and sometimes I think we get a little hung up on process. We kind of create a structure of of putting faith into action and discipleship that's too strict. And and it's like, man, that's just too many steps to get to where I want to go. I'm not even going to mess with it. On the other hand, you, you can have too loose of a process where people are going, well, I want to do it, but I don't even know what the first step would be. I don't even know how to to get involved in being active in my faith. Can you give me a way that's easy and actionable and likely? Uh, And we go, well, just do it. Well, but but how? Just do it. Okay, Nike, give me some process. Give me some first steps, right? Help me make this practical. And so, so somewhere between too much process and not enough process, we need this kind of middle way, right? And so we start looking for the perfect process. I was doing my defense on on my doctoral stuff and was kind of sharing this tension and how sometimes I can get caught between these two things, a desire uh, to have enough process to make it likely, but not too much to make it difficult. Uh, And and Dr. Mark Hamilton, who's in the group, uh, says, you know, so often we go in pursuit of the perfect process to start doing something new or to change our behaviors. Uh, And there's something that I think we need to remember. The pursuit of a perfect process is a myth and a lie that if we go chasing it will only keep us on our bottoms doing nothing. The pursuit of a perfect process is a lie that keeps us from taking action because we keep sitting there going, boy, I don't want to be over here. I don't want to be, where's the perfect path forward? And he says, sometimes we need to just start doing it and ask for forgiveness when we mess up and find faith that gets us through the next step. Boy, okay. And I've thought about that a lot since then. And so today, what I want to offer you is a, a, a range of kind of thinking about how you can put faith into action and then hope that you just start taking steps forward into that. One of them is, if you're just not sure what your next step is, you can just wait for our fourth Sunday ministry opportunities and say, I'll sign up for one of those and start putting my faith into action in this very easy, actionable, first step kind of way. We're going to give you different choices each month so you can find different ways to exercise your faith. 
But Jesus also has this one occasion where he's sending out the 72 disciples. So he's got the 12 apostles, and at one point he's got 120 followers, but at this point he's sending out 72. So this is a wide range of his followers. And in this instance, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet is a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that for that town. A little bit later, Jesus says, Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you a few instructions. But here's what I really need you to do is just go and start doing it. And the instructions are are not overly specific. They haven't gone through a Bible study training program that takes them through the Torah and that gives them uh, guidance on all the things to say and the ways to consider cultural uh, missionary methods. He doesn't give them any of that. In terms of evangelistic training, this is the shortest evangelism training program ever. He tells them, listen, when you go out, pray for God to send you. When you go out, here's what you pack. Don't get too caught up in the supplies you're taking. Don't pack a lot of stuff. God's going to take care of you. Go. He gave them a few instructions on what to say, a few instructions on where to stay, a few instructions on what to do. And then he says, now just go. And they went. And when they went, they prayed. They said what he said to say. They went where he said to go. And when they did, they came back and they gave an evaluation. Here's what we experienced. Even the demons were in subjection to us. We had incredible success. And Jesus and the apostles and disciples celebrate together all that they were able to experience because they just went out and did what Jesus told them to do. They were disciples. And they put it into action. Uh, Mark Scandret, the guy that I mentioned earlier, developed a similar set of instructions that are, that are pretty similar to what Jesus told them to do. His process is this. Get with a group of Christians. Come up with an experiment. And here's the ground rules for the experiment. It needs to be rooted in the teachings of Jesus. Not just some crazy idea that someone has to make the world a better place. Go root your experiment in the life and teachings of Jesus. Get a group of people that will then commit time and energy to a new set of practices. We're going to do an experiment. It's based in Jesus' life and teaching. We're going to, to get together and give time and energy to setting this experiment into action in our lives. And we're going to do it based on real needs 
that we see in society or in ourselves. And then after we've done it for a while, we're going to come back together and reflect on if it made a difference in our lives or the lives of others. That's a pretty simple process. The process doesn't really matter, does it? As much as actually taking a step forward and doing something. So their first project that they came up with based on the teachings and life of Jesus was that they came up with a ministry and an experiment that they called Have Two, Share One. And he, he put it out here and said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try and give away half of what I've got. If I've got two, I'm going to try and give one away to give it to the poorest people in the world. And he says, is there anyone that wants to do this with me? 30 people came together and said, we want to be part of this experiment rooted in the teachings of Jesus to change the world. And they came together, and for eight weeks, uh, they would sit down, and they would look at a different aspect of their material possessions. Okay, this week we're going to be looking at jewelry and, and clothing. How can the jewelry and clothing that we own be used, given, donated, sold, or recycled to bless the poorest people in the world? And then they would try and put that into action. They would come together and say, how can our money be used? Do I have two? Do I share one? Now, this isn't just an idea that they have to reduce the amount of stuff. This is rooted in the teachings of Jesus that all who are his disciples should sell their possessions and give to the poor. The teaching in John the Baptist who says, listen, if you are someone who has two shirts and your neighbor doesn't have one, give one of yours away to the one who doesn't have one. And week after week, they went through their possessions and they reevaluated their spending habits. And after doing this for eight weeks, they came together at the end. They had a huge garage shell at the end of it, sold so much of their stuff, gave the proceeds, um, I believe it was to victims of, of a tsunami in Indonesia at the time uh, that were in incredible poverty and despair and, and had just been hit by this incredible disaster. And they were able to send much of what they raised over there. But in the eight weeks that they were doing this project, there were things they expected to get out of it that when they got together to evaluate at the end, hey, did this actually change our lives? To do this for eight weeks, did it make a difference? There were some results that they expected. They were able to give thousands of dollars to the poor. They were relieved of the mental anxieties of maintaining unneeded possessions. If you own less stuff, you spend less time maintaining and cleaning and, and upgrading the things you do own. And you don't have to worry about it as much. You have more time when you have less stuff. They experienced the joy of sharing. And these were things you would expect to experience when you are giving away so much of what you have to the poor. But there were unexpected results of this project as well. They were surprised how much this diverse group of 30 people grew close to one another through this eight weeks. That, that they were very, very connected, having become vulnerable and shared their, their different struggles and challenges of this experience with one another. And they began to have a shared story of what they learned in doing this together. They were surprised how rapidly those relationships were deepened. But interestingly, rather than just wrestling over the ideas of Jesus' teaching, they also had engaged in obedience and action and discipling as a community. Some of them at the end of the eight weeks felt called by God to quit their jobs and do things differently in their lives. 
A few of them felt the need to sell their homes and move to poorer parts of town where they could build relationships with people struggling with with poverty and other things and build those relationships. Some of them uh, got out of debt. Some of them were called to be reconciled with family members who they'd gotten into struggles with about possessions or wealth. Some overcame addictions. Because if I can control my spending habits, maybe I can control other habits in my life as well. Some experienced inner healing that they'd been battling with for a long time. They developed a greater sense of identity, purpose, security, and peace. And at the end of it, they said, maybe we should keep doing this. Not the have to share one. It's not about giving away everything they had. What they meant was maybe we should keep reading Jesus and coming up with experiments. Maybe this is a better way of practicing being a disciple of Jesus and putting his teachers in action than Bible study. Now, I love Bible study as much more than anyone, but if I'm just studying and I'm not putting it into action, I think Mark's doing something bigger and better than I am. And so rooted in their study of Scripture, they start coming up every year with a set of experiments that they're going to do in community. Some of them are one-day intensive. Some of them are weekend retreats. Most of them are four to eight week projects where they say, hey, let's do this over a little bit of time and come together each week and meet and talk about what we're learning, what Jesus is doing in our lives as, an, as a reaction and a response to experimenting with our faith. One of them was called uh, Awakening Creativity. And they said, listen, we believe that, that God and Jesus created the entire world. And if God is creative and he gives us abilities to be creative beings, what would it mean to awaken our own creativity? And they formed a group that met for six weeks. And in one of those occasions, they met together and they spent some time in prayer. And then they did a 10-minute poem. You have 10 minutes to write a poem about what draws you towards wonder. 10 minutes. Write a poem about what draws you towards wonder wonder. In another week, they got together and they went on a, a walk in nature and saying, look at all the things that God has created. Now, using only what you see here in the woods in what God has created, you create an art piece of some kind. And they created art out of what God had created and given them. In another week, they got a photographer that came in and they were told in advance, when you come next week, uh, you need to bring two sets of costumes and props. One set of costumes and props is going to be exploring your shadow side, your dark side. Who are you when you step outside of the light of obedience and faithfulness to God? What does your dark side look like? And they dressed up as that, and the photographer did a photo shoot of them kind of modeling that side of their life. And then they also brought a costume and a set of props that says, who are you and how do you envision yourself in your best version of you living out the kingdom of God in your life. And they, they, they modeled that and took photographs. In the sixth week, they got all of their different art pieces, their poetry, their sculptures, their, their, their photography, and they put it together and they had an art show. And they invited all their friends and family to come to this art show. And, and the centerpiece was these, these portraits of their dark side and kingdom side. And the artists took their family and friends and others who were gathered there around and said, listen, this is who I am without God, and this is who I am with God. And they took them and said, God has created, and I created this out of that. And they end up sharing their faith journey with their friends and family as a result of their being invited into this awakening of creativity experiment, rooted in Scripture, rooted in faith, but just trying it out in different ways in their lives. 
Another group committed to practice silent or stillness prayers. Be silent in prayer before God for 20 minutes a day for six weeks. Every Tuesday morning, they got together and they talked about the experience and what was difficult about it, what was blessing them, if it was working well or if it wasn't. At the end of six weeks, they said, what did you get out of this? One group member reported that he had a breakthrough in his relationship with God. Another found that it helped her with emotional healing that she had been unable to experience for a long time. One member just struggled with it through the entire six weeks. But in visiting with one of the other members in the group who was a counselor, began to kind of realize that their struggle with silent prayer was rooted in some anxiety and depression that they needed to work through outside of that group. But it was in the listening that they heard that. Another group member uh, who was a home health nurse, he reported that, that when he goes into people's homes and he's working with his patients, that if he started his day with 20 minutes of silent prayer with God, boy, that he was way more patient with his patients throughout the rest of the day. Real-world transformation of how he interacted with people as a result of this experiment. And if you do this for six weeks, don't you think in the future when he got impatient, he kind of went, uh-oh, I haven't been in prayer before God lately. I can feel it in my impatience. They found that the stillness prayer wasn't an end in itself. You don't aim towards the quiet before God. But they found that when you did that, it became a means toward producing in you this transformation that helped shape you into more of who God wants you to be every day. That it wasn't the end in itself, that it was the means of God transforming and shaping them and surrendering themselves to God. One experiment was called Feast with the Forgotten. For six weeks, group members of this one uh, agreed that they would try and see people who are overlooked and rarely invited to meals and would invite them into their homes or to restaurants and eat with them. A feast with the forgotten. Why? Because Jesus says to go out to the highways and byways and invite people in that often get ignored and bring them in and, and you feast with them. So they had feast with the forgotten. Another group uh, came up with a project uh, what was it called? It was called Seeing as God Sees. This was a one-week project. But for one week, these group members committed that every time they came in contact with someone, they would do their best to actually look that person in the eyes and to see them as God sees them. As children of God that God values and that Jesus loved enough to die for. Does it change how you interact with the coffee salesman, your barista, if you take a moment and look in their eyes and say, God loves you and I do too. You don't even have to say it out loud, but to just see them. Does it change how much you tip? I don't know. I haven't done the experiment, but they did. And they came back together at the end of a week and said, what did you experience at the end of a week of looking into people's eyes and seeing them as Jesus would or as God does? Over and over again, this community of Christians gets together. And what they do is they believe and take Jesus at his word that everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus talking, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blows and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. But it's not enough to have faith. Even the demons have faith and shudder. It's about putting that faith into practice, putting that faith into action. So what do you do? What do you do? How do you actually do this? Here's what you do. You find your group. You read Jesus. You come up with an experiment. You evaluate your experiment and how it affected your real life or the life of others. You share it with other people so it can be a blessing to them. And then you come up with a new way to do it. We think if something succeeds, we have to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. I would offer you that Jesus' teachings address so much of life, so much of spirituality and formation, that, that if you only go about it one way, if you lock into prayer and you just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray, at some point doesn't God say, hey, I need your help answering some of these prayers. Can you get out and do something? If you're someone that just serves and you serve and you serve and you serve, but you never take time to Sabbath and rest and receive blessing from God, you're going to get burnt out. If you really look at the totality of the teachings of Jesus, it invites you into this balanced nutrition, this balanced diet of having so many different aspects of being shaped and formed. Don't just find one thing and lock into it. Get a season where you focus on one aspect of the teachings of Jesus. Get in a group, come up with an experiment, try it out, see what you learn, and then go to the next one because you need grains and meat and dairy and vegetables and fruit. Jesus has so much to offer. Don't get locked into one thing. So how do we do it? Find a group. Come up with a teaching of Jesus, an experiment, evaluate, share, and then repeat with another project. If you're thinking, I, this is just too much for me, I, I don't have a community, I don't know a group, uh, that's okay. We can do some of this work for you. Just put on your phone, fourth Sundays, block it out, so that when the church says, here's a way you can put your faith in action in an experiment, you show up and put your faith in action in experiment. Let Jesus help you grow through your willingness to put your faith in action so you can stand against the storms of life. Because faith without action is a dead faith. Today, I invite you to a faith that is filled with life and that will enrich you and bless the world and provide connections with God, connections with one another, and connections with the world. Because God wants us to do more than just believe. He wants us to be disciples of Jesus putting our faith into practice. If you show up with expectation, if you step forward with anticipation, you will not be left disappointed. God will show up and he'll bless you and bless others. If you need to respond this morning, uh, please come forward as we stand and sing. There's a message true. For the sinful and the sad.